Last week, we started a two-part series on brokenness, calling it, If It Ain't Broke, Break It. And as I said last week, I know that's horrible grammar, but it's a better title that way than saying it the proper way. And uh, we, we, we're talking just a little bit about being broken before the Lord. Um, and we talked last week about areas of our lives, which areas of our lives need to be broken. And if you remember, we talked about the fact that we need to have our wills broken before God because we are such a willful, strong-willed people. And we need to have our wills broken before God so that we're doing what He wants. We need to have our pride broken before Him because we are prideful. And, uh, and the only people who say I'm not prideful are usually the ones that are the most prideful. Uh, but pride is, it hides so well in our lives. And so we talked about that and how we can recognize pride in our lives and how to break it. And the way you break it is to get into the presence of God. When you catch a glimpse of his holiness, you begin to see yourself for who you really are and you don't, you don't play games anymore. And, uh, and then the third area was we need our hearts to be broken because we live in a world of people who need Jesus desperately. And, and we talked a little bit about last week about how if you're like me, my, my natural response, when I see a lot of the junk that's going on in the world and a lot of the horrible things that people are doing and a lot of the, the, the agendas that are being pushed, if you're like me, my first emotional reaction is to get angry. And it's okay to be angry as long as I direct my anger at the wrong, at the right place. And that's, I need to direct it at the enemy of our souls. Uh, my anger needs to be, be feeding into my spiritual warf warfare, not into anything else, but that I need to have my heart broken for those people because I have to remember Jesus loves them every bit as much as he loves me. He died for them every bit as much as he died for me. And so I need to have a heart that's broken before God. I need to weep over the things that, which cause God to weep. And what causes God to weep? It's the brokenness and rebellion of mankind and the rejection of his son, Jesus. And so we talked about those things last week. I, I really feel like it was one of the most important messages I've preached in some time. If you didn't watch it, if you didn't see it, I, I encourage you to go online. You can find it on Facebook. We'll be uploading it uh, to our website here uh, later today. I'm a little bit behind on getting some of those things uploaded, but I encourage you to go watch it, especially that last part, the part on being broken, uh, in our, uh, hearts broken for the lost. It's, it's just something uh, that uh, I believe God's laid in my heart. And, and in the middle of all that, the, the whole thing is, is that, and this is what I feel, I can sense the Spirit saying it, and I've, I've heard it even from other places uh, and other ministries, is that there just seems to be a renewed emphasis from the Spirit to remind the church that Jesus is coming. And that, and, that, and that means, that's good news for us, but it also means that we should have a, search, a sense of urgency because we're running out of time. And so, uh, anyway, all of that is in last week's message. Today I want to continue on that theme of brokenness with a message called Broken for a Purpose. Last week, we talked about where we need to be broken. Today, I want to talk about why we need to be broken, or, or maybe more accurately, what happens when we are broken in the presence of God in, in the right ways and in the right places. Now, now we don't, we're not talking about being broken in your sin or broken because of heartache and that sort of thing. The, I'm not talking about the brokenness that the world brings. I'm talking about a, a humility and a tenderness that comes in our lives 
when we get into the presence of Jesus and really catch a glimpse of who he is. That's the kind of brokenness I'm talking about. And so what I want to do today is I want to, I want to just, and this is a very simple message. There's nothing profound about this. Uh, this, this is probably not going to be very long, but I know you've heard that before. But, uh, uh, but I want to look at four examples from the Bible of things that were broken and then discover what happened when those things were broken and then talk about how that relates to us. All right. So would you bow your head and let's just pray and ask for the Lord's help today. I know I need it and I know you do too, because I need the help speaking the word and you need his help hearing it. So let's pray together and ask for his help. Lord, as we come into your presence, God, you see my weakness, but God, that makes me excited because in my weakness, your strength is made perfect. And so God, I am just putting myself in your hands and asking God that you would anoint me, that you'd give me the right words to say, and that God, that your power and your anointing would rest upon your word and that you would, you would change us today. And God, I pray that you would not only anoint me to speak, but anoint our, all of our ears to hear your voice. But God, God, help us not to fall into the trap of saying somebody else needed to hear this or that was good for somebody else. But God, help us to just simply pray and say, God, let me hear your voice today. What are you saying to me? And I pray, God, that as we do that, that you would change us. God, we're not here for a flash in the pan. We're not here to chase after emotion. We're thankful for those moments, God. But we're here to be changed by you and to be empowered by you, to be encouraged in your presence. So, Lord, accomplish your purpose in us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Somebody say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, man, you guys are here. You're ready today. All right, let's look at four different things, different examples of things that were broken in the Bible and talk about what that means for us today. The first thing that I want to talk about today is broken jars. For this one, we're going to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to be looking, reading out of Judges in just a moment, but we're going to go back to the story of Gideon. And, and, in, and Gideon was in the book of Judges and we read the book of Judges, and it's a little bit unfortunate that it's called Judges because when we think of a judge, we think of somebody who's sitting up on a bench with a big robe, and they're saying, well, you're guilty or you're not guilty. That's not what a judge was in the Old Testament. They were actually people who were raised up by God in moments of need. When Israel needed a deliverer, they were raised up to be a leader for the nation to help them make it through to, and really to lead them to a place of repentance because Israel had this pattern and, and see if it doesn't sound familiar to with, with uh, uh, us nowadays, but Israel had this pattern of, of behavior and that is that they would, they would be going well, things would go, be going well, God would be blessing them, they would be worshiping him in the right way, they'd be pleasing him and then all of a sudden they'd start getting distracted, they'd start you know, doing other things. They, they would disobey him maybe by mar intermarrying with people who, who had, uh, worshiped false gods. And then they would adopt those and start worshiping idols and they would backslide. And whenever they would back backslide, God would deal with the nation. And the way he would deal with the nation is that he would bring some occupying force or some other nation in and he would use them to, to, uh, to uh, uh, put it this way. How many of you, when you were a kid, ever got a whipping? Let me, let me see your hand. 
Yeah, I can tell because you you guys are all good folks. You know, the ones that never got a whipping are the ones that are not here. They're they're watching. I mean, anyway, I won't say that. It's hard to say they're in jail somewhere, but a lot of them are. But uh, that's maybe a little too far to go. But 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 God used those other people like my mom and dad used a belt. You, you hear what I'm saying? He would use them to bring correction and to wake them up and help them come to their senses and see what, what they were doing. And then when things would get really bad, eventually they would fall on their faces. They would cry out to God and ask for help. And that's kind of what's happening with Gideon. That's the same situation, the same cycle they've been through over and over again. And the people of Israel were backslidden. They were participating in idol worship. And as a result, the Midianites, which is a nation there in the region, they began to attack the Israelites. And it got so bad. I mean, it was this constant battle, this constant fight, this constant war. And it got so bad that the Midianites, who uh, they were, they had enough power and had enough military strength that they were really oppressing the Israelites. And it got so bad that the Israelites began hiding in caves. They didn't even stay in their homes. They began to hide in caves because it was safer to do that. They, they were starting to go hungry because the Midianites would come. And as soon as the Israelites would plant a crop, they would, they would ruin it. They would, uh, they would uh, mess up the field. They would dig it up. They would, they would not let a, a crop grow. So they were heading toward famine. All these things were taking place. And all this was a result of God using the Midianites as that tool of correction to try to wake the Israelites up. And guess what? They finally did wake up and the people of Israel began to cry out to God. And when they cried out to God, he answered them. By the way, he answered them every single time they cried out. And it's the same for you and me. Every time we find ourselves in that place where God is correcting us, we can cry out to him and he will answer us. And if you don't think that God's people today face correction, you need to read Hebrews chapter 12 because that's a big part of what it talks about. The fact is God corrects those whom he loves. And so whenever you feel the correction of God in your life, you should rejoice in that moment because you know God loves you. But anyway, they cried out to him and he answered once more. And what he did was he sent one of his angels to talk with a man named Gideon. And Gideon was there and he was in a, uh, in a wine press threshing wheat. And, uh, and he's, he's there doing this, this work. And this angel appears and he says to him, he greets him by calling him a mighty warrior. You know what I love about God? is that he sees us as he calls us to be and what he's going to do in our lives, not who we are now. Because Gideon was anything but a mighty warrior. The very fact that he was, he was threshing wheat in a wine press tells you that because what does that mean? See, when they normally, when they would thresh wheat, they would do it out uh, on, on a hilltop just over the crest of the hill and the prevailing wind would blow across and they would throw the wheat up in the air. The wind would catch all the, 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 the I forget what it's called now. What's that? Chaff. That's the word. Correct. You passed the test. They would, the wind would catch the chaff and blow it away and the grain would fall back down, but they did it out on the hilltop. Guess what? When you're on a hill, hilltop, everybody can see you, right? 
You're out in the open. You, you're very vulnerable. You can be seen. But Gideon is doing it in a wine press where he cannot be seen. He is scared to death. He is hiding, doing what needs to be done, threshing this grain. Uh, but, but he is hiding from the enemy. He is not a mighty warrior. He is a cowardly young man, just like most of Israel. He was scared to death. Well, without going into a lot more detail, Gideon finally answered the call of God, even though he argued with God. Uh, how many of you ever argue with God? How many of you ever won one of those arguments? Me neither. Uh, but, but he was arguing with God saying, I can't do this. Because God called him, he said, I'm going to use you to deliver Israel from the Midianites. And Gideon's like, I can't do this. I come from the smallest, I'm the, the smallest in the smallest family in the smallest tribe. I'm way too weak. I can't do this. And I love it because, you know, when God's eyes, when we say, God, I'm too weak for this. He says, then you're perfect. You're perfect for the job because if you're weak, then everybody knows it's me that does it. Well, he finally answered the call and he begins assembling all the fighting men of the nation and he gets this army together. Thousands of people, tens of thousands of men who are ready to fight. I believe if I remember correct, I didn't look it up. I should have, but I believe it was like 30,000 men and that may or may not be right, but it was, it was tens of thousands of men that he got together and he was, he was looking at it and he's like, well, this is not the biggest army in the world, but man, I feel pretty good about our chances now. But then you know what God said to him? God said, Okay, Gideon, I see your army. We have a problem here. We have a problem with the number of your soldiers. And Gideon's like, well, listen, I know we're not as big as the Midianites, but I think with your help, we can handle it. He says, no, 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 Gideon, you don't understand. You got too many men. I don't know about you, but going into a battle, I have never heard any commander say, hey, we just have too many soldiers because you want to go in with the overwhelming force. And, it, and so... God told him, no, you got too many. Because if I let you fight like this, you're going to, you, you and the Israelites are going to claim that you did it. But I want to make sure everybody knows I did this. So you got to cut it down. So they cut it down and they did that twice. And finally he ended up, after it was all said and done, he ended up with an army of, and as I, I use that term very loosely, with a group of 300 men, a fighting force of 300 men to face the nation, uh, the army of a, of an entire nation. Well, the battle, the time for battle finally came. And listen what happened, Judges 7, 16 through 20. He divided the three men into three groups and gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. Then he said to them, keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, just do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horn, blow your horns too all around the entire camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. It was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the 100 men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Suddenly they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands. And they all shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And then we... The rest of the story we're not going to read today that the, the Midianite army and those other uh, groups that were, that were there with him, they all uh, broke into a panic and, and they began fighting each other. They killed each other off and, and the battle was won without getting even, we're not even told of him even lifting a sword. But I want you to picture this moment because as these 300 men are gathering and they're, 
divided into three groups and they're surrounding the enemy on three sides. They come up to this group. I want you to understand and get the picture in your mind. They had the horn in one hand, but they had a, a torch that was lit with a jar over the top of it. Why was that? Because it was going to keep the light from coming out. They're going to be able to come up on this army and they're going to be able to sneak up and get into position without them knowing they're there. And then when the moment came, they blew the horn, they broke the clay pot, the clay jar that's over the torch. And immediately when the jar was broken, what happened? The light began to shine. The light began to shine and, and that light shone out of the broken jars and the Midianites and all along with other nations who had aligned themselves with them were overwhelmed. They were surprised. They began to attack each other. But my point of this is not even about the story, but the point that, that I want to make with this message today is that the light of those torches would never have shone out if the jars had not been broken. There was a breaking required before the light could ever shine out. And I want you to know that we are very much like those jars of Gideon. We are jars of clay with a light that's hidden within. Second Corinthians 4, 6 and 7 says, For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars contain, containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not for our, from ourselves. We have the light of the gospel. We have the light of his glory residing inside of us. But, but we are often, we're like those clay jars that are over the torches and, 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 but when we are intact, when we are not broken in his presence, we hide that light. It, it's never seen. It doesn't shine out. But when we are broken in God's presence, then his light begins to shine out of our lives. Listen, sometimes life breaks us. Sometimes hard experiences crack us open. Sometimes our lives are shattered by the actions of other people. But I want you to hear me very clearly this morning, whether it's a brokenness from being in his presence or a brokenness from living in a broken world. I want you to know and understand this very clearly that God can redeem the broken places in our lives. God can redeem those broken places. He can use those broken moments to shape us. And he can use those broken moments when he brings us through to bring hope to other people around us when they face similar life-shattering events. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Why? so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Then we know what he wrote in Romans chapter 8, one of our favorite verses in, in the church in America, and it's a powerful verse, one of my favorite verses, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Do you know what that verse right there tells me? It tells me that no matter what happens in my life, no matter what other people may do to me, no matter what medical disaster I, I may face, no matter how deep 
deeply I am betrayed when I'm stabbed in the back. No matter how hurtful the actions of other people may be in my life, no matter how painful my circumstances may become, that verse tells me that God is going to be at work redeeming that situation and somehow or another he's going to bring good out of it into my life. Now, now that good may not be something tangible in this world. But it will be for my good nonetheless. It may be simply that I will grow closer in intimacy with, with Jesus as, uh, in the midst of my suffering as I begin to realize that he knows what it's like to suffer, that he suffered even more than I am suffering. It may be that my pain and brokenness will open doors to touch other people who are going through similar tragedies. I, I may be able to help help uh, someone else find the comfort and peace that Christ brought into, into my life. I may be even, even able to lead someone into a relationship with Jesus who is the Prince of Peace. But whatever it may be, I know that he will bring good out of it. And he will be glorified as a result of it. So what does that mean? That means don't be afraid. Don't be resentful when those things happen. The light of God can shine through those cracks in your life. I don't know who said it. I heard, I've heard it quoted so many times, but I don't know who said it first. But someone once said, God never wastes a hurt. He never wastes a hurt. If something happens in your life and it brings pain, God's not going to say, oh, well, that's just too bad. Just write it off. He's going to use that pain. He's going to use that sorrow. He's going to use that hurt to, to bring good, to grow you, to strengthen you, and to let the light of his glory shine. You know, even in your pain, he is at work. You, you can absolutely count on that. Now, I want to say this. That doesn't mean there won't be scars. That doesn't mean there won't be scars. In fact, I want you to know, scars, I believe, are not a bad thing. I don't think they're a bad thing at all. Most of you know, back uh, a few years ago, I underwent open heart surgery. I've got this big scar going right down my chest right here. I've got to know of at least one or two other people in here. We, we're, we're match set. We're twins. Uh, because we got those, we got that scar there, but you know what? I'm not ashamed of that scar. I'm not ashamed of that scar. You know why? Because that scar is a reminder to me and to the world around me that healing has taken place. If healing hadn't taken place, I wouldn't have a scar. I'd have an open wound and I wouldn't be here. But the scars are signs that God has brought me through. So when you look at your life and there's something that's happened that's broken your life and, you, and you're walking around with some kind of scar, remember this, even Jesus after his resurrection was able to show his scars because the scars are nothing more than signs that God did a miracle. Without the scars, how's anybody ever gonna know where you've been and what he's done? You ever thought of that? Let's move on. The second broken thing is an alabaster jar that was broken. We read about it in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, 
wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. So just before his crucifixion, Jesus was in the town of Bethany, not, not far outside of Jerusalem. And he was at his friend Lazarus's home. And Mary came in. Now we're not absolutely certain which Mary this was. It could have been Lazarus' sister who was named Mary. It could have been Mary Magdalene. We don't know for sure, but we do know a woman named Mary, one of those two most likely, came in and with her, she brought this jar of very expensive perfume. Now I want to say this about the jar of very expensive perfume. That was often, something like that was often uh, a, a, a dowry, so to speak, that that woman had Dowry is not the right word, but it was something that woman had because if anything happened to her husband, she needed something valuable to be able to sell, to be able to live on. Because in those days, if you were a widow, and if you, especially if you didn't have any children, you were just in big trouble. There were no social safety nets. There was, there was no uh, payments from the governments. There was nothing like that. You were dependent on the people around you. And so often a woman would have something like that that was very expensive and they would never open it because if they needed it in an emergency later, they could sell it and they could earn some money. So this is a, this is a very important uh, piece of her life that she has here. And, and it says that she comes in with this very expensive jar of perfume and she, she broke the jar open. Now, for us, we don't understand that because when we buy a jar of perfume or a bottle of perfume, it has a little lid that you screw on and screw off, but that's not the way it was. It was sealed up. The only way you could open it was to break it open. And once it was broken open, there was no sealing it up perfectly again. So this is not a, well, let me just use a little bit of this now. This is an all in moment. And so she breaks the jar open and she's there and she pours the, the, the perfume out on Jesus's feet and his wiping his feet with her hair. Can you just imagine that moment? This, this intimate moment of worship for the, from this woman who, who, is, who is just worshiping the one who has done everything for her, set her free. It's, it's just, it's just this unbelievable moment. And, and I'm, you know, in my mind, I picture that maybe they're there and they're in a room with just a few people around. And then all of a sudden, the smell of that wonderful perfume begins to fill the whole house. And, and I can just picture the other disciples and say, man, what that smells, what is that? That is so nice. And then they go in and they, and they walk in on this scene. But the perfume was poured out and the fragrance was filled the house only because the jar was broken. If it had never been broken, it would never have been poured out and the aroma would never have filled the house. Listen, when we are broken in the right places, in the, in the presence of God, then the perfume of the Holy Spirit can be poured out through us and in us. When that alabaster jar was broken, a sweet fragrance filled the room. And God wants to fill this world with the fragrance of the Holy Spirit, with the presence of His Spirit. And when we are broken in the presence of the Holy, then in that moment, the presence of the Holy Spirit can begin to permeate the atmosphere wherever we go. That wherever we walk, people begin to sense the presence of Jesus because they sense that aroma. Let me, let me read it to you the way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 7. He said, I am grateful that God always makes it possible for Christ to lead us to victory. God also helps us 
spread the knowledge about Christ everywhere. And this knowledge is like the smell of perfume. In fact, God thinks of us as a perfume that brings Christ to everyone that they sense his presence and they knew now now it goes on to say that for people who are perishing that it smells like the smell of death but for those that are being saved it's a wonderful aroma but our lives are filled with this wonderful aroma of life and when we're broken in God's presence he releases the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere through us it, it kind of makes me think of a, of a little illustration I read about this factory that was in northern France and in this factory, lavender was used for uh, that, that was uh, was used for perfumes. It was produced there, and so every evening, though, when those factory workers got off work, they would all head for home, and they would walk the streets of that little town. And as they walked the streets of that little town, the whole village would be filled with the sweet aroma of lavender that had clung to the workers' clothes. Everywhere they went, the smell of where they had been began to fill the place. Can you imagine walking that place where you you're, you're, you run in a coffee shop and you're like, man, I can't wait till five o'clock. Woo, it's going to smell good in here then. Because everywhere they went, the, the evidence of where they had been filled the room because the aroma of that factory had had clung to them and it's very much the same way when we're in the presence of Jesus when we're in the presence of God when we find ourselves being broken in his presence broken for the lost broken because we see his holiness and we realize how far 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 for, far short we fall we see his holiness and we receive his grace and we walk out of that out of that place just in amazement of the grace and the mercy of our God then when we go from that place out into this world then the aroma of where we have been begins to permeate the world where we go. That's what he's talking about here. And that's how it should be with us. As we follow him, as we stay close to him, we will be the aroma of Christ to the world. I mean, have you ever thought about like this? Wherever we are, whether at school or at work or shopping or with family, God has left us in the world to demonstrate the gospel to the world. And, and like a beautiful scent, we, by our lives and by our, our words, spread the knowledge of the power of God for salvation to everyone we meet in every place we go. That's what our lives should be. That people can just sense that we have been with Jesus because, of the, because the atmosphere changes. Now, we have not redeemed ourselves. But God has done all of this in us. And we then become the evidence of what he has done everywhere we go. And we become the witness of what he has done to this world. When we are broken before God, people begin to sense the presence of God in our lives. Let's go on to the next one. This is a story of broken bread. Mark chapter 6 beginning in verse 32. Another one of the most famous stories in the New Testament. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving, and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. 
But Jesus said, you feed them. With what, they asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. How much bread do you have, he asked. Go, go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. And Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then, breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. So here we have the story. Great crowds of people followed Jesus and they, 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 he got on this boat to, to go find some alone time. They saw where he was going and they literally run ahead on the shore and get there ahead of him. And, and they, he saw them. He was filled with compassion and he began to teach them and he taught them all day long. And the disciples began to realize late in the afternoon they, that, that the people were in need of food. And they said, Jesus, you know what, Jesus, it's really getting late. And it's been a long, long, hard day out here in the sun. And these people are really getting hungry. And if, if we don't do something, they're, some of them are going to start falling out. They're going to faint. They're going to, their, their blood sugar is going to drop. And then we're going to have a mess out here. But, but you know what, Jesus? They're not going to go anywhere unless you tell them to go. So you ought to send these people home or send them out somewhere. Tell them to go find the nearest McDonald's or something and get something to eat. And then they can come back. And I love Jesus's response to the disciples. He said, oh, there's no need for that. There's no need to send them anywhere. You feed them. You, you feed them. And their reaction was exactly like yours would have been. Uh, with what? With what? We barely have enough to feed ourselves. How are we going to feed all these people? We don't have enough food for them. And Jesus, it would take months for us to be able to make enough money to buy enough food for these this many thousands of people. And Jesus then tells them, he said, all right, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just go find out how much bread is available. And then Matthew, when he tells the story, he provides the detail that it was a little boy who offered his lunch of five loaves of bread and two fishes. Now, when we think five loaves of bread and two fishes, you need to understand this is not, you know, big wonder loaf breads, you know, and giant river trout or anything like that. These were very small, uh, more like we would call them probably more like a biscuit. They were very small. The fish were very small. This was a little boy's lunch. Okay. This is not a family meal. It's a little boy's lunch. Five loaves of bread, two fish. What good is that? when you need to feed a crowd of probably 15 to 20,000 people, because it was 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. Well, Jesus took the offering and he broke the bread. And after the bread was broken, the hungry were fed. But the people could not, could not have been fed if the bread had not been broken. And we need to be broken so that the hungry can be fed. People are hungry for spiritual things. How many of you have heard somebody say something like this? They say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm just, I'm spiritual. You ever heard anybody say something like that? You know, what they're really saying is, I'm looking for something real in the spiritual world. I'm tired of doing all the old, same old religious activities. I want something that's real. That's what they're really saying. And we look around and we see 
that there are, if you want to know if there's a hunger for spiritual things, there are revivals all around the nation and all over the world. You, you probably heard recently about the massive baptism that took place on the campus of, of Auburn University. Uh, you probably heard about that. You, I know you heard about uh, a few weeks ago about the, the weeks-long revival that took place at Asbury College in Kentucky. And, and there are places around the world where people are just literally turning to Christ in droves. You, you, did you know that there are Muslim men and women who are coming to Christ in countries where there are no missionaries, but, be, but they're coming to Christ after Jesus appears to them in dreams and reveals himself to them? Often the whole family will wake up and they all had exactly the same dream of Jesus revealing himself to them and they turn their lives over to Christ. People are hungry today. You'd often hear about these things, but, but they're happening right now all over the world. In fact, did you know that the fastest growing church in the world is the church in Iran. Did you know that? In the most, the most notoriously anti-Christian, violent regime, regime on the globe, people are turning to Christ because they're tired of following empty man-made religions. I have a video documentary on my computer that I wish everybody here would see. It's called Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2. That uh, it, it, It's about the, the revival that's going on in Iran with, uh, with of people turning to Christ and what he, what he, God is doing in that place. There's, there's a book on my, on my desk called Women Who Risk, and it tells the story of women in Muslim countries who are coming to Christ and they're being used by God to lead others to Jesus and they are absolutely fearless in their witness to, with, for Christ even though it puts them at great risk. And I'm telling you all of this to, for, so that you'll see and understand that there are many, many, many people in this world who are open to Jesus and they're hungry for something that works. It's easy for us to say, we look at our culture and we say, nobody cares, nobody wants Jesus and we just quit and we give up. It's just not true. There are so many people looking for answers. There's so many people looking for something real. Yes, you're, they don't want to go through just the motions of attending church. They want something real. And, and, and they're, they're hungry for something that works. And I want to remind you that we have the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. True contentment is found in Jesus. True meaning and purpose in life are found in Jesus. True joy and happiness are found in Jesus. And I love in this story. One of my favorite parts about, about the story is, is that Jesus takes something that is completely insignificant and it's completely irrelevant and he does miracles with it. He used a little boy's lunch to feed thousands upon thousands of people. I mean, in light of, of the need, what good was the little boy's lunch? Think about it like this. We'll just scale it down a little bit. What if we, if we were dealing with a crowd of 10,000 hungry people and we said we need to feed these 10,000 people, what good would it do if, if Keegan Johnson came up and he offered us his Lunchable and said, here, will this help? No. But what does it say to us when we see the need around us and we feel small and insignificant? When we see Jesus take a little boy's lunch and feed a multitude, God can take our small, insignificant lives, break them open, and then use those broken pieces to feed a world that is starving for truth.
starving for something that is real, starving for something that, 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 that has meaning beyond this life, starving for something more than just merely existing from day to day. When we are broken, God can use our lives to bring the bread of heaven to the starving masses. And then the last thing I want to talk about that was broken is a, is a body that was broken. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes this, I have received of the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, we all know this. Jesus allowed his body to be broken. He was beaten. He was whipped by a Roman soldier with uh, probably with a cat of nine tails. And I'm not going to get into the details of what that is. You probably already know. They, 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 would, they beat him. They blindfolded him. And then they would punch him in the face and they would mock him saying, all right, prophet, who hit you? Who was that? They placed a crown of thorns on his head. They placed a, a purple robe around his shoulders to mock him, saying, oh, look at the king. He's got his crown. He's got his robe. And he was crucified. He had a spear thrust into his side. I'm here to tell you his body was broken. Scripture tells us that he was marred beyond recognition. You couldn't even tell he was a human being or who he was. And he allowed it. Because he knew that this was the only way to offer salvation to the world. See, here's the thing. I think we all know this, but we need to remember this. Our sin cried out for justice. How many of you remember the story in Genesis where Cain killed Abel? And, and when, when God saw Abel and he said, where's your brother? Again, he's asking a question. When God asks a question, it's not because he needs an answer, because, but it's because, it's because he wants you to face the truth. And what did he tell Cain? He said, Abel's blood cries out from the dust. He's saying, listen, Cain, the sin you've committed is crying out for justice. And our sin cried out for justice. And according to the Bible, the only true justice for sin is death. The only true justice. Justice for sin is death. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. Death is a wage that we each, all of us, we all have earned with our sin. And death, I'm here to tell you this, understand this very clearly. Death is the only way to pay for our sin. It's the only way. There's no other way to deal with it. However, the problem is, if, uh, if somebody says, well, you know what, I'd like to die for my family. The problem with that is if a blemished sacrifice or a, a sinful person is offered for sin, then that death is only going to pay for his own sin. So that meant that a, a perfect sinless sacrifice for sin was needed in order to satisfy the justice and the holiness of God for all mankind. And Jesus became that sacrifice. Jesus was the only one who has ever lived 
who was even, even close to being, but he was qualified. He was the only one who was qualified to be the sacrifice for our sin. And there was no other way to restore mankind's relationship with God. Our salvation would not be possible without the broken body of Christ. And, and, and yes, he could have died quickly, but you know what? That beating he took, the suffering he went, was to help us understand just how horrible our sin really was. I mean, you go back to the Old Testament and uh, the Old Testament system of sacrifices. I'll, we don't think about this, but can you imagine uh, with with, uh, with thousands of people coming in and offering their sacrifices in, on the altar? Can you imagine the stench that filled that place? Have you ever have you ever been around a place where animals are being slaughtered? I'm, I mean, it's the the stench had to be horrible. And the blood was everywhere. It was just a gory, gory situation. Why, why did God set it up that way? Because he was trying to show the Israelites, this is how horrible your sin really is. Look at what it costs. Look at what it brought about. Look at what it's done. And when we look at Jesus, it's a reminder to us that my sin was not just a little thing. It was not just a little side problem. My sin was so horrible and so gross that it literally poured suffering out on the Son of God. But His broken body was the only way. And you know what? Related to what we talked about last week, we need to be broken so that others can find the freedom and forgiveness that Jesus' death offers. You know, the fact is, they just, many of them just don't know. They just don't know. And our hearts should be filled with compassion because we know there are people who are running headlong, headlong toward death and destruction simply because they don't know that salvation and forgiveness and peace and freedom and purpose and all of these things and more are all available in Jesus. I used an illustration, uh, I don't know, a while back, a few weeks, several months, probably on a Wednesday night Bible study, but it's so fitting for us today. Imagine you're standing on a, by a roadside on a lonely, windswept highway with the rain pouring down. And as you're there, you see that the, 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 there's a bridge that has been swept away by the river and it's a hundred foot drop into the chasm below. And then way up, way up the highway, you, you see headlights coming through the rain and you say, Oh, dear, dear Lord, there's somebody's kind of coming. They're going to drive into that chasm. So you run out into the middle of the road in the middle of the highway and you stand there and you're waving your arms at them. And, and finally you're able to bring that car to a stop. And you say, you say to the man, stop, stop, stop. The bridge is out. The bridge is out. The bridge is out. And the driver rolls his window down and says, get, would you just get out of my way? Don't interfere with my life. Don't tell me how to live. Don't try to influence my decisions. What's the matter with you? Are you some kind of nut? Get out of my way. And you say, wait, wait a minute, mister. I'm not, I'm not trying to run your life. I'm not judging you in any way. I'm just warning you that the bridge is out. If you go this way, you're going to drive off the bridge into a chasm. You're going to die. And he says, get out of my way. My mother said that bridge was out. The, my father told me that bridge was out. The cop up the road told me that bridge is out. But I don't believe them at all. That bridge has never been out before. I've been over a lot of other bridges and they've never been out. And it's not out now. So get out of the way. Well, you know, your tendency at that moment might be to cross your arms and say, hey, go. 
But then you look into the car and there beside him in the front seat is his wife, pregnant. In the back seat, there are two little children. The little boy leans up over the front seat and says, Daddy, is the bridge really out? He says, shut up, don't be stupid. That bridge is not out. How many bridges have we crossed in the last hundred miles and none of them was out? This one's not out either. And he looks at you and says, get out of the way. And you say, man, man, would you just at least let the kids out of the car? At least let the kids out of the car. Don't take them to destruction with you. And you see, that is, that is the plaguing, horrible burden of evangelism in these times. You say, I know that there's a day of wrath coming. I know that there's a judgment coming. The bridge is out. And you see some guy going through sin, one marriage after another, one divorce after another, one adulterous relationship after another, just destroying his life. And the problem is that he's also destroying the lives of everybody that he touches. You can see that, 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 that this way leads to destruction. And you, just, you just want to grab him and shake him and say, what's the matter with you? Are you nuts? The bridge is out. You're going to die and you're going to take all these people with you. That's what Noah must have felt as God closed the door of the ark behind him. The opportunity for salvation was gone for everyone outside the ark. As long as God leaves the door open, I'm here to tell you I'm going to do everything I know to do to bring as many people into this, into this ship as I know how. I'm going to preach every sermon I know how to preach. I'm going to expend all the energy that I have. I'm going to do everything I know to do to bring as many people as I possibly can into the ark of safety. But I know in my heart of hearts that sooner or later the day is going to come when Jesus is going to step across the, the threshold of eternity and the last trumpet is going to sound and the sky is going to unfold and the earth will melt with fervent heat and the judgment day of Christ will arrive. And in that moment, there will be no bargaining. It's going to be awful. It terrifies me. It absolutely terrifies me. And I, I don't want anybody on that day to look me in the eye and say, you never warned me, preacher. You told me everything was okay. You told me if I'd just come to church once a month and write a tithe check, then everything would be okay. You never told me I had to actually get in the ark of safety. You never warned me about the judgment day of God. I don't want that on my account. That's what Noah felt. God closed the door behind him. And one day Jesus is going to come, and God will close the door behind us. And when we are broken before God, when we see the people around us the way he does, then, then, then that brokenness motivates us to love people enough to tell them the truth. When our hearts break for those things that break the heart of God, then we'll begin to take the call of God to preach the gospel to all the world more seriously. Listen, I understand it if you're afraid but let his love fill you because perfect love casts out fear. You know, I heard uh, several years ago, I don't even know how many now, it was before our daughters were born, so it was over 21 years ago because my oldest daughter is 21. But I, we were, we were uh, visiting my family 
during Christmas time. And I remember on the news one night, this tragic news story came on. Somewhere in one of the smaller outlying communities there in the Kansas City area, there was a house fire. And what made it so tragic, especially, was that there were, uh, if I remember correctly, there were three children who died in that fire. But what had happened was, there was a little girl, if I remember correctly, she was eight years old, who got out of the house. She was, she had made it to safety. But she realized that her two younger brothers were still in the house. She went back in to try to save them and lost her life. What in the world would cause a little girl to leave a place of safety and run into the mouth of danger to try to snatch somebody from the fire? Love. That's it. There is no other motivation. If it's, if it's a sense of obligation, you're going to say, well, I don't know. I'm going to hesitate. What will cause us to leave our place of comfort and safety and go into the, into the, the pits of hell, so to speak, and snatch people from the flames? If it's going to happen, it's because our lives have become filled with the love of God and we've been broken in his presence for those who are lost. And we care so deeply for them that we, we tell them the truth, we pay any price, we do what needs to be done so that they can come into the ark of safety. That's why missionaries become martyrs on foreign fields. I remember, I forget his name, but I, there was a missionary that I heard, uh, I heard his story when I was in Bible college. But he was a missionary in a nation in Africa. And uh, he was getting ready to head back there. And, and a uh, revolution broke out. A rebellion broke out. And there was war, <clears throat> turmoil, and all kinds of things going on. And, and <clears throat> people told him, you can't go back there. You can't go back there. And his family didn't go back there, but he bought his ticket and he was boarding the plane. He was going back there. And, and they said, and they tried to talk, people tried to talk him out of it. They said, you don't go back there. If you go back there, if you go to that nation, you're not going to come home again. You're going to die there if you go there. And that man looked at them in the eye and he said, God called me to go. He did not call me to come back. What could cause someone to do that? The love of God has filled his heart to such a degree that he was so broken for those lost people in that nation. He said, I'll pay any price. So the question for us remains, what will we do? Will we, as we mentioned the verse last week, will we allow ourselves to fall on Jesus and be broken? Will we allow God to work in our lives to bring a sense of brokenness to us? And I'm not talking about living a life full of, you know, mourning and sorrow, but I, but I am talking about living a life with such a burden for those lost people that it is something that, 
that we, we sense the weight of God's heart in that area. But here's, here's the irony about brokenness. Joy is found in brokenness. You know why? Because when I'm, when I'm in that place, I'm so close to the heart of God. And that's where joy is found. You know, there are a lot of people in this world who are broken, but most of the people have been broken by life. They've been broken by circumstances. They've been broken by their sin. They've been broken by betrayal. They've been broken by the enemy. And there's so many people who've just given up hope. Well, we need to be broken before God so that other people can have hope again. Our brokenness before God can bring healing into their lives. So will you be broken in God's presence so that His light can shine through you? Will you be broken in God's presence so that the perfume of the Holy Spirit can permeate your life and fill the atmosphere wherever you go so that the presence of God has an impact on people? Will you be broken in God's presence so that the world that's hungry for wholeness, hungry for something that's real, hungry for Jesus, even though they don't even know that's what they're hungry for, so that they can be fed? Will you be broken in God's presence so that people will find life and forgiveness in the broken body of Jesus. What will you do? You see, God gave us this free will. He's not going to make you do anything. He's not going to force you to come into His presence. He's not going to force you to allow the Holy Spirit to work, to change your heart, to fill you with compassion, to fill you with love. So what will you do? Will you let Him do what He wants to do? Will you let Him... Change your priorities? Will you, will you let him break you for the lost people of this world to such a degree that you'll say, Lord, whatever the cost, I'll let go of anything, I'll pay any price if I can just bring somebody in to the ark of safety. What will you do? Would you bow your head? Let's pray together. Father, I just so strongly believe, Lord, that you're dealing with us and not just us, but your church at large, about the reality that Jesus is coming, that night is coming when no man can work and we're running out of daylight, we're running out of time. And God, I just pray you'd help us. Help us not to be the soldiers, like the soldiers at the foot of the cross. As they cast lots for your garment, Lord God, they were literally playing games at the foot of the cross. And we don't want to be playing games at the foot of the cross. We want to be serious about this. We want to be sober about your call. Doesn't mean that we won't live a life full of joy because the truth is the more we do this, the closer we'll be to you and the more joy we'll experience. But God, I just pray you'd help us to just honestly evaluate our lives and, and, and ask ourselves, where am I on this? And Lord, that we would just let your Holy Spirit do what you want to do. We, we sometimes pray that, God, but we don't really mean it. So, Lord, just lead us to that place. Help us to be broken in the right places so that we'd be useful in your hands, so that you could shine through our lives, so people could sense your presence, so that we could lead people into the ark of safety. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, and there's nobody looking around. Listen, these messages these last two weeks, we're, never, none, we're not at all intended to try to bring condemnation. But I do hope 
that where it's needed, it brings conviction. Where we have taken the call of God lightly, I pray that we would repent before Him and we would let Him fill us with His power, with His presence, that we press into Jesus, which, by the way, your flesh will fight. And we'll let Him do what He wants to do. This morning, if you'd say, Pastor Dave, I just want you to pray for me. I don't know where you are. I don't know what God's dealing with you about. I don't know what he's saying to you. I don't need to know. Because I, I can't do anything about it. But if you'd say, Pastor, I just want you to pray for me because I hear God talking to me. I, hear it, I feel his spirit nudging me. And I, I want to respond. I want him to do whatever he wants to do. And I want you to pray for me that I'll follow through that I'll, I'll let my will and my pride and my heart be broken in his presence so that I can be so much more useful than ever before in the kingdom of God. And if that's you and you want prayer, would you just right where you are, slip your hand up? Yes, yes. All over the place, their hands up. Father, you see every hand, but more importantly, you see every heart. And I believe God that every person that raised their hand is utterly sincere in this moment. But God, I'm just asking that somehow by the power of your spirit that you will let this go beyond simply this moment. That as we go to bed tonight, as we wake up in the morning, Lord, that we will, we will hear your voice and we'll sense you drawing us into your presence and that as we come into your presence, we'll catch a glimpse of who you are, Lord God. And in that moment, that we'll be, be broken in ourselves and, and we'll stop relying on our ability and stop uh, wanting the things that, that this world offers. And God, that instead we'll fall so in love with you, that you'll fill us with your spirit, with your power, with your love, and that our lives will be radically changed from this moment. God, let it, let it, let it happen not just this moment, not just tonight, but tomorrow morning, the next morning, every day, God, change us a little bit more. And Lord, draw us into your presence. Draw us into your presence. God, help us to have that fortitude of choice where we say, I will spend time with him. I will just wait in his presence. And God, that as we do, we'd be broken in the right places so that we'll be useful in ways like we've never been before in the kingdom of God. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.